Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast focusing on climate news in the region stretching from Eastern Europe and Russia down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Natalie Soer, a Paris-based climate journalist, and joining me today is my colleague Boris Schneider, a Berlin-based climate and energy expert. We will be dedicating today's episodes to the impact of the war on the supply of critical minerals necessary to the energy transition. Unsurprisingly, energy prices were rocked by the Russian invasion in Ukraine, with aluminium and nickel prices jumping up in the first two weeks after the conflict began, the latter over 100% up, both on fears of direct disruption and over concerns about soaring energy prices that could shut down production in Europe. Other metals of interest in this war include titanium, scandium and palladium. We'll be discussing all of this and more, this time with an interview with Robert Muga, a political scientist, urbanist and security expert and the co-founder of the IGRAP Institute, a think tank dedicated to climate security based in Brazil. As part of this episode, we were keen to bring you a feature showing the underground effects of the war on the supply of critical minerals. But the feat proved much harder than anticipated, didn't it, Boris? Indeed. First, our Ukraine-based correspondent couldn't report upon this because of security concerns raised by the war. And later, also our Polish correspondent got told by representatives of companies he wanted to speak to that they do not want to publicly discuss issues of shortages and war as they consider it a sensitive issue and it might be bad for their image, especially as a company is listed on the stock exchange. But thankfully, Robert Maga is a brilliant and knowledgeable speaker on this issue, and I have no doubt our listeners will have plenty to take away from the episode. Now, before we delve into the interview, perhaps we could go over the basics of critical minerals for our listeners. First up, what do we mean by critical minerals, by the term? So the International Energy Agency says that critical minerals are essential components in many of today's rapidly growing clean energy technologies, from wind turbines and electricity networks to electricity vehicles. They include both what we call base metals, which are in abundant supply, such as manganese or nickel, rare metals, which are geologically rare, and rare earths, which rather than geologically rare, are difficult to extract. Russia is one of the world's biggest suppliers of critical minerals, including of palladium, which is used in engine exhaust to reduce emissions, titanium, which could also help store energy produced by renewables, and rare earths. And Ukraine enjoys large reserves of lithium, which, as you probably know, is a crucial component to enable electrical batteries to store energy. Let us start with copper. It is essential for electric vehicles, solar and wind power, and batteries for energy storage, which all run on copper. It is also key to the infrastructure that transports renewable energy, such as cables, transistors, and inverters. Then there are graphite and nickel, which are also used in batteries for electric vehicles. Then there is manganese, required for steel production for wind turbines and electric vehicles, and also for batteries. Last but not least, there is zinc, which protects wind turbines, solar cells and transmission towers against corrosion. It is also used in energy storage systems and in batteries. Now, on to the interview. 
I began by asking today's guest, Robert Muga, about Russia and Ukraine's reserves in critical minerals. Russia is a major mineral superpower. I mean, it produces right now more than 10% of global nickel. It's got 5% of the world's aluminum supply, 43% of the palladium uh, supplies. It's a huge potash uh, producer that's already uh, home to, to massive rare earths. Uh, and, you know, Russia actually, you know, almost counterintuitively experienced a, a surge in the potential valuations of its minerals after it invaded uh, Ukraine in, in uh, earlier this year, in February. You know, nickel prices reached the highest point ever in February and palladium became more expensive than gold. So in a way, what many countries realized very quickly, well, you know, was that while Russia is not necessarily the, you know, the, the largest supplier, many of them were highly dependent on Russia. Um, and so they received a shock, um, not just from the war, but from the sanctions that's also accelerated their effort to scramble for new supplies. And what we're seeing is that mining interests, not just in Russia, but also uh, companies out operating outside of Russia, keep in mind that 80% of Russia's commodities are traded through Switzerland, also came under scrutiny. And so we're going to see a lot of, a lot of, I think, disruption ahead. But I think it's important. What I was curious about uh, when the war started was, well, what are the implications for Ukraine when it came to the war and, and its own resources? And what was striking was that Ukraine is also a mining superpower, at least for those of us who weren't following this as closely, perhaps as people you know in the business, as it were. And my company, Sekdev, undertook an examination of, of Ukraine deposits. And we looked at over 9,500 deposits across 170 mineral types. And Ukraine is among the biggest suppliers of a number of major minerals. And what we discovered is that Russia occupies about 2,000 of Ukraine's uh, known 9,000 plus deposits um, and currently occupies the equivalent, we estimate, of about 20% of all resource wealth uh, in Ukraine. And, and the valuation of that comes to about $12.5 trillion in today's you know, rates. When you say all resources, does that include gas and coal? Or is that just for critical minerals? No. So it's, it's everything. So, so Eastern Ukraine, as many of I'm sure your listeners will know, is, is home to vast hydrocarbon reserves and notably coal, but also natural gas and oil. And, and a lot of it also is uh, there are many deposits also in the Crimea uh, area and, and uh, you know, in the Crimean Sea. And so what we see uh, in Eastern Ukraine, the areas occupied by Russia, um, is coal of which Russia currently occupies more than 57% of Ukrainian supplies. Uh, iron ore, and Russia again has over a quarter of Ukraine's supplies under its sort of uh, military occupation. Manganese, um, which is really important for battery production and other devices that are going to power the green transition. Titanium, uh, and then of course, oil fields and gas fields. The vast majority of that enormous number, 12.5 trillion, is coal. Right in, in today's prices, but there are hundreds of billions of dollars worth of other critical minerals right now that are either uh, stalled in terms of their production um, or potentially, you know, disrupted in the medium term because of the reluctance now of investors to move into Ukraine. The other thing I'd say is that Ukraine has lost, you know, potentially billions of dollars worth of rare earths right now in terms of the Russian occupation, assuming that this uh, is maintained, you know. Really important rare earths like strontium and cesium and tantalum and niobium and especially lithium 
um, are located in the eastern and southeastern parts of the Ukraine. And what's interesting is that there were efforts, and we'll, I'm sure we'll dig into this, uh, by the European Union uh, to support Ukraine in building out its uh, critical mineral and rare supplies before Russia's intervention um, back in 2021. Of course, because Europe was aware of its reliance on China as well as Russia for a number of these minerals. And there had been a major effort to try to uh, undertake auctions to build out those supplies um, to start both producing and then potentially refining and uh, refining rares. But that was, of course, eviscerated months after the auction was started by the Russian intervention. Just as it had done by turning a blind eye to Rio Tinto's development in Serbia. Rio Tinto, the Anglo-Australian giant, tried to develop a, a lithium mine in Serbia that was highly polluting and opposed by locals. And locals were quite frustrated by the European Union's lack of action uh, over, over this affair. So the European Union is evidently scrambling for alternative supplies of minerals to, to China and Ukraine is a case study. It's really interesting. I mean, I, Europe depends on, as you know, China, you know, China for, for 98% of its rare supply. And perhaps like in the Balkans, the EU was trying to help uh, Ukraine expand its capability to produce and ultimately uh, you know, export the raw materials. And it supported an, an e-auction in, in 2020 and 2021 in Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, Ukraine Invest, the company that manages these licensing, received over 100 proposals from um, a variety of companies around the world and was expecting to generate, you know, well over $10 billion, uh, to develop areas. And the EU signed um, a strategic partnership with Ukraine, as it has, by the way, with other countries that are rich in uh, various minerals that it's defined as critical and was looking also to sort of court Ukraine in, in helping develop its entire value chain, right? From extraction to refining as well as recycling and signed a variety of proposals. Uh, and the alliance had potentially, you know, significant potential uh, in, in terms of reducing reliance on China should it have, well, had it gone through. But of course, as, as you know, it, it, it fell apart um, sort of in February uh, 2022. It's interesting to note though, Natalie, that a similar effort was made by Europe um, supporting Ukraine back in 2013 with respect to hydrocarbons, recognizing its you know, dependence on Russia for natural gas, oil, and, and the rest. There was an effort by Ukraine to expand its production. Ukraine has sizable uh, deposits in everything from you know, shale, gas, to oil, and, and as, of course, coal in the Donbass. And that licensing process, which began in 2013, uh, attracted interest from, again, a whole motley crew of hydrocarbon companies and, and energy companies. And it was also essentially torpedoed by Russia's annexation of Crimea a few months after the licensing went into, into play. And in, in fact, it was these two incidents, the efforts to expand its hydrocarbon uh, industries and, and then its efforts to uh, expand its rare earths production and refinement and Russia's intervention that really provoked, you know, our, our research into what was really at stake in Ukraine and, and to what extent were these material assets potentially among the drivers for Russia when it intervened mm -hmm. in 2022. 
Now about your research, I wanted to ask, uh, in the intro to this episode, we were explaining how we originally tried to send out a correspondent to mine in Ukraine, be it of lithium, manganese, copper, nickel or, or graphite metals, to document how the war was impacting the critical mineral supply. And she quickly hit a wall because while information on mining companies had been available for the past 30 years, they are now hidden for security concerns. Did you never struggle with security concerns in your own research? I mean, she was even accused by some of being a spy. No, it's, it's interesting. I mean, of course, Ukraine and, and, and others, of course, in, in their efforts to attract investment, often put their geological surveys or parts of their geological surveys online and make available, in some cases, geolocated data around um, suspected uh, deposits and reserves. You know, at one point, I think Ukraine had online over 20,000 suspected sites where there might be some kind of critical mineral, keeping in mind that there are over 177 mineral types that are known to be in Ukraine. Of course, as, as, as the war approached, <laughs> or the possibility of war approached, and, uh, you know, tensions were rising, it's true that I think there was a, a growing awareness uh, about the strategic importance of this data and the ways in which it might be used uh, by a variety of actors, nefarious or otherwise. And so what we noticed, anticipating this might be the case, um, we very quickly went to the sites, and there are a number of sites in Ukraine, with our team of including Ukrainian Russian speakers, to download as much as possible of what was available. Uh, so we were able actually to build out a pretty comprehensive data set before things went dark, uh, which I think is what your correspondent discovered. Mm. And I think that, you know, in some ways, the world has been learning uh, about geography, not just the Americans, as the old saying goes, uh, through this conflict and becoming more aware of, of the ripple effects and knock-on effects uh, of the conflict on commodity prices and supply chains. And so I think, you know, this is now seen more as, frankly, intelligence than as open source information to drive potential investment. And so I think this will probably persist for as long as this conflict goes on. That's to say, the lack of access to data is, is likely to persist for a while yet. So we've uh, briefly touched upon how the war was having a knock-on effect on prices of uh, renewables. Do you think this critical mineral shortage risks derailing decarbonisation efforts in, in Europe and beyond? I think at the very least, the war will make the transition more unpredictable and will increase disruptions in what was already going to be a very challenging exercise of weaning uh, the world off hydrocarbons and moving towards renewable energy. And what we're seeing already with the war is it's having you know, wide-ranging impacts across the entire supply chain, not just, again, as I've mentioned, in, in terms of production, but, but also in refining and, and ultimately production of end, you know, manufactured goods. You know, at the very beginning... You know, it's reduced Ukraine's viability uh, as a source for critical minerals and, and rare earths. And it's also limited in many ways Russia's potential, given the array of sanctions and the reputational costs. Much as China's reputation was tarnished when it set an embargo uh, on rare earth exports to Japan, I think Russia's reputation is going to suffer and it, the ability uh, for Russia to export its goods and the willingness of, of Western and other countries to uh, import them, obviously with considerable exceptions, I think is going to be damaged for a while. So the war is, is at a minimum eased uh, and reduced, and in fact, in, in some cases terminated, 
the ability of, of domestic and international companies to uh, extract many of the minerals required for powering the green transition from, from Ukraine and, and Russia. It's also, I think, contributed to wild fluctuations in prices with some countries gaining and, and many countries losing. And I think it's set off this scramble and the, the, the development of new alliances. And maybe that contributes to more supply chain resilience in the, in the medium to long term. But in the short term, certainly it, it means that what we're seeing is a lot of strategic stockpiling, growing protectionism. And this is having ripple effects you know, across entire industries from semiconductor chips to components in um, you know, solar panels to EV batteries. And even what we're discovering is that even slight supply chain problems have these global repercussions. And we're going through a series of shocks, you know, including uh, COVID-19 and, of course, decoupling between China and the United States. And now, of course, war in, in, in the Ukraine. So, you know, the risks here is we start seeing the hoarding of, of key strategic you know, reserves as well as manufactured products. Uh, and, and we see the knock-on effects already taking place in the EV sector um, and in EV battery cell production. So I think it's going to certainly create short-term to medium-term disruptions with, you know, reverberating con- and at the very least will slow the transition. You know, on the other hand, you know, the wars is, is also sending, it's a wake-up call, right? That, and, and COVID-19 was, just as COVID-19 is a wake-up call, about the importance of you know, rapidly making a transition. So I think it's in some ways added new impulse uh, and, and an economic incentive to hasten the transition. But, but again, the challenge is, is about organizing supply chains. That's a great debate, isn't it? Uh, is uh, this war going to drive governments into uh, lock-in fossil fuel contracts or is it going to accelerate the energy transition and experts are split? Yeah, it's really complex. I think a lot comes down to, you know, not just the prices, but the kind of the wider uh, environment of, of polarization and democratic politics and the crisis, uh, you know, of populism that we're seeing mm-hmm. as well. And, and, you know, so I think we can't just look, we can't look at these things separate from the, the shifts in, in, our, in our global politics and the deepening polarization. And in some cases, the, the sort of rejection of, of of the, the push to renewables, but you know, I think I think we can take some heart from some of the latest moves in the United States, and we can get into that um, as well as some of the efforts of the EU. So, how can critical minerals from Ukraine and, and Russia be compensated in an ethical way? Well, I think that so we in the West um, have to attach a higher premium to the importance of. Uh, properly sourced, responsibly sourced, transparently sourced supplies. And that needs to become, in a way, part of the comparative advantage as, as we think about ways to power the green transition. Because it's not uh, you know, just about Russia and Ukraine. Had the war not happened, there would still be this uh, mad dash, as it were, to secure these strategic reserves of these minerals that that are essential to to driving the renewable energy uh, that's going to you know deliver the the Paris agreement uh, in in theory the Paris agreement target targets what you're saying essentially is that there are no easy answers and it's something <laughs> that needs to be thought about yeah i think i mean i, I it's true it's, it's such a it's such a vast uh, and sweeping topic i mean i think this is right it's it's it's, it's not straightforward and there are no easy answers but i, I do think 
you know, there, there, as we think about this, this new great game that we've entered and the risks that are associated and, and the multiple priorities that we're having to deal with, in, you know, the acceleration of climate change, the tensions with China, the war with, between Russia and Ukraine, there are a couple of, I would say, principles that are, are important to think about as we think about supply chain resilience when it comes to critical minerals and rare earths and, and managing, uh, as you said, the environmental uh, uh, externalities that can result. The first is, I think, there needs to be uh, investment and, and strategic thinking about how to diversify the supply and, and with government setting sort of firm conditions on what that means um, when it comes especially to setting standards. We need to do research and surveys and, and permitting, raising awareness about the consequences of these minerals and, and the trade-offs um, and how to minimize them. I think the second thing that we need to be thinking about is promoting a lot of innovation across the value chain, right? So it's not just about extraction, but how do we increase the efficiency in both the processing and refinement, but also in the tech innovation? And think about the material substitution, the, the synthetics that could potentially replace the need for extraction in the first place. I think there has to be a radical scaling up of recycling. This is a really important feature, not just now as the energy transition technologies are taking off, but in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Not only does this relieve uh, pressure on supplies, but this focus on, on rapid growth of recycling um, in waste, uh, incentivizing R&D in, in, in recycling of, of core materials, you know, this is going to be a huge value proposition as well. Already, we're estimating that by 2040, the, the secondary markets for recycling and minerals are going to account for between you know, 5 and 12% of, of products like lithium, nickel, and cobalt. So this is a, a major effort that we need to be investing and doubling down in as part of building supply chain resilience. And the fourth area is around increasing supply chain resilience and market transparency, You know, setting better stress tests, um, investing in creating better and more reliable price benchmarks, you know, ensuring better transparency. And this includes in relation to ESG. And then finally, I'd say we need to, we need to, and this really gets to the point, right, is, is mainstream and um, upgrade our environmental standards. You know, we have to start rewarding strong social environmental performance in, in, this, in these sectors. We have to be improving legal and labor standards. There needs to be better due diligence and verification. For too long, you know, these sectors have been obscure and shaded um, and there needs to be an opening up. And, and that, again, can be part of the comparative advantage of this diversification is underway, away from, say, China and, and Russia from the Western perspective. All of this needs better information, more reliable data, and, and growing awareness from the public. Because I think, you know, this is a, an issue that for too long has been in the shadows. Um, and I think, you know, podcasts like this and, and the kind of publicity that's now being attached to uh, the, the outcomes, the, the, the sort of shocks, the shockwaves in commodity markets of the Ukraine-Russian war are really important um, because if you don't have the public behind these kinds of efforts, they're not going to be driven through. And perhaps along with the degrowth thesis, we could start by thinking of products that are more frugal and, and use less resources in the first place. No, I, there's a whole separate argument that we need to have about our over-reliance on products that rapidly become obsolete or are broader questions around, you know, the circular economy and, and, and donut economics and the importance of respecting planetary boundaries and the kinds of uh, technologies and, that we're using in, in our everyday. So I think, you know, part of that public awareness piece is about provoking conversation about these paradoxical impacts of the green climate transition and our growing emphasis on 
renewables and the underlying minerals and rare earths that are required to power it. And, you know, understanding those trade-offs and provoking conversation about greener living and relying less on, on, on many of these technologies, I think is absolutely a critical piece. You know, I, one thing I often say as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about cities and, and, and the, the functioning of cities and the importance of cities also as, as players in this green energy transition is that we don't need necessarily more electric vehicles. Uh, what we need are just fewer cars full stop. And this is part of a, a broader discussion that's happening, I think, around the world about rethinking our, the way we live and our, you know, the choices that we make in getting to zero carbon, you know, require bigger behavioral transformations and shifts than simply relying on, on these new and exciting technologies. So absolutely, public awareness is key and, and recognizing the trade-offs and making behavioral changes is going to be central to also addressing these big challenges we face and these geopolitical competitions over critical minerals and rare earths. Robert Muga, it has been a pleasure. I'm sure uh, this leaves our listeners with a lot to ponder upon. Um, and thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review and share the episode on social media. Our podcast is supported by Anost, a Berlin-based NGO backing cross-border journalism, by the Moscow Times and by the European Climate Foundation. A big thank you to our three partners for making our work possible. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. Get in touch on Twitter, where you will find us at Eurasian Climate. If you can, please support our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Eurasian Climate. We'll be back on October the 3rd with a new episode, so see you then. <laughs>